0: This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go! Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and I am thrilled to be the best episode that I record on a monthly basis. Your favorite, the listener's favorite, Bank Nerd Corner with my friend and the banking and fintech editor at Bank Director, Kia Hazlitt. Kia, thanks for coming back. Hey, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I am delighted that you are here. How's the new job going?
1: Good. It looks a lot like the old job, but more (laughs) official fintech coverage. I don't think you can divorce banking from fintech and financial technology. So I have been thinking a lot about that intersection and playing with it. And I'm excited to kind of publish under that title. And I'm excited to, for people to read about it.
0: Well, maybe we can get a little bit of practice on sort of covering that intersection on the podcast today. We have a bunch of really great topics. As a reminder for the listeners, Kia and I will kind of start by breaking down some of the interesting banking or banking-adjacent news that's happened in the last month or so. Luckily, there have been no bank failures. Kia, we're on, like, a pretty good streak, actually, which is
1: awesome. Incorrect. There was actually a Kansas bank failure that happened a couple of weeks ago, and Uh it looks like it was a fraud. And it's very funny when a bank regulator comes out and says, No one needs to worry. It was just one bank that fell prey to a fraud or a scam. Mm-hmm. And now I want to know what scam was big enough to collapse this whole bank. The bank had about 130 million, million with an M in assets. And the loss that the FDIC is taking is 50 million, which is pretty big relative to the bank. So that's kind of the biggest indicator that something unusual was happening at this bank. Or happened at this bank.
0: Okay, well, once more details are out, maybe we'll add that to the agenda for a future podcast episode. There is no banking crisis, maybe would be a better way to say the current moment in which we're podcasting. Or if it is a crisis, it's the slow moving one that we've been talking about for a while. We will then end the podcast as we typically do with a couple of fun segments just to sort of poke at some questions that Kia and I have that maybe don't have full or complete answers, but we're going to talk those out. So Kia, with that, should we jump into the news?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Okay.
0: I will go first. First story, we can do this one relatively quickly, but it was reported recently that Apple, which not too long ago launched a savings product, which is sort of weirdly handcuffed to their Apple credit card product in a way that I've ranted about before and I find a little bit strange. Apple has now gathered $10 billion in savings in deposits from that savings account. So- that's over the span of about 15 weeks. I find that to be a pretty large number. I think, we talked before when they first launched at sort of like guessing where they might end up by the end of the year. So far, they're still on track. And I have to say, given that everyone right now is in a knife fight over deposits and deposit betas have been going up, banks are paying more to get deposits, whether it's through brokered CDs or high interest savings accounts or any number of other strategies, some of which we'll touch on. I'm surprised Apple was just able to kind of wade right into the middle of this and suck so many of these deposits up. What do you think is going on here?
1: You've been baffled by the narrow offering. And honestly, I'm wondering if it's too popular Mm. because Apple is out here making it look easy. They really are. To just bring in $10 billion for Apple, these would—I'm not 100% sure if these are core or brokered, but these are relationship deposits that an Apple customer who uses the phone and uses the credit card is bringing into the bank, into Goldman Sachs or into Apple. It's good- I am not sure what is actually going on. I don't feel like there's been a ton of marketing.
0: No, I haven't really seen any.
1: There was a lot of news stories. I will say um, a lot of the free press. Banking industry, yeah, really contributed to this. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I think Apple's just telling more consumers that they could make more for their money and whether or not it was like hard, quote unquote, to open one of these accounts, enough people were able to do it and were attracted to the rate. The other thing too is these are not defined as large accounts. They are under, have to be under the $250,000 insurance limit. Right. This is reta- probably retail money and people are not turned off by how difficult and weirdly niche this account is.
0: Okay, so here's a theory that I'm going to run by you and tell me what you think about this theory. We've talked before about like different types of deposits that are out there and which ones are hot and which ones are rate-seeking and which ones are a little bit more sort of lazy money, sleepy lazy money that maybe just sort of stays where it's supposed to be. There is a lot of sleepy lazy money in retail. I think even today with digital banking and with fintech and with all of these great rates that you can really quickly switch to, even with all of that I think people are constantly surprised by like how much just sort of inertia there is in retail banking. But most of the sleepy, lazy money in retail is purposefully held down as low as humanly possible by the big banks that have a lot of those retail deposits because they have a productive use for those deposits that they want to put them to. I wonder if Apple plays a similar role in the lives of just your average retail customer but this would be sort of like if J.P. Morgan Chase went to all the people it could reach through its sort of ecosystem and went, hey, we're going to pay you four and a half percent for your deposits rather than paying you the pathetic amount that we're paying you today. Like they could probably raise a ton of money just because easy access to a large retail base combined with making them aware of an easy rate that they could easily get that's attractive maybe that's kind of the combination. And the difference is just that Apple doesn't have to care about deposit betas the way that a large bank does. Is that a fair theory?
1: I think that's a good theory. I would add that you didn't mention cannibalization at all. Banks have deposits and they want more deposits and they'll pay more for the new money, but they don't want the old money to wake up. Right. They, wanna, they, wanna they want to keep it asleep. the difference. Yeah. Banks chase or probably doesn't want to turn on this weird faucet to attract deposits with this high rate money, because some of that money might come from Chase customers. And so you see with some of these like new account specials, it has to be new money, the new money to the bank. And Apple just doesn't have that problem at all. There is no current old sleepy money with Apple. It's all new money. And that's, I think why you see Apple doing this and you don't see other banks doing it as easily or as readily Mm -hmm. to their customers because they want their customers new money that's outside of the bank, but they don't want their customers current money to be making more money.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I recently moved some money from a large bank to a different one because they were purposefully keeping my rate really low because they weren't going to pay me more. If I was to go back to them now and open up a new account, they would pay me for that. But like...
1: Yeah, the exact same money. Just wash your money back and forth. Just wash your
0: money back and forth to go back to the same bank. Like they would do it. But I think that's a good point, right? Like if a bank has a large base of retail customers that they could access, the reason they have those is they already have deposit relationships with them. So they're not going to turn on some great savings rate for those customers. Apple has a big base of retail customers with no deposit relationships. So the incentive there is different. Plus... Apple's not a bank. And so the net interest margin benefits of keeping deposits low and then doing lending, Apple's not going to realize that anyway. So if they want a savings account as a part of their ecosystem, they don't really have to care about deposit rates. Right.
1: Right. And the other thing, too, and I know you talk about this with some of your other podcast friends, (laughs) but the decision to partner with Goldman or at least a bank that's over $10 million in assets. This is an important one for any savings of fintech that thinks it might be mildly successful and this is probably the second time we've seen a non-bank savings account get really popular and get a lot of deposits and there are only so many banks in the country that can handle 10 million dollars of deposits coming in without it creating pretty big problems like I don't know if you're familiar, but deposits coming to a bank can sometimes be a problem for the I've bank. I've heard that. I've and, heard that.
0: That's been in the news. Yeah.
1: There's only so many banks that can handle 10 billion of deposits coming in 15 weeks right. without having like Stuff other breaking. ways to offload these deposits. Right. right. So,
0: so, Goldman. Um, that was, you
1: know, you know a wise choice there.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. One, well, it, it relates to other Goldman news, which we won't get into because we've already covered it on this podcast a lot. But as Goldman looks to maybe exit the Apple relationship, who can take on those deposits, or maybe if Goldman will try to hang on to the deposit portion of the relationship, that'll be part of that consideration as well. You have a deposit story that you would like to share, I think, too.
1: Yeah, one of the recurring themes. So I love that we're having this fintech podcast, and so we just keep talking about deposits like all the time. But They're hot. They're hot now. Uh, one of the <laughs> one of the things that we've seen come up with the competition for deposits is the ways to get deposits into the bank, and of course, I mean deposit marketplaces. So. We read an article in The Financial Brand recently about this company called Save Better. I think it's it's the U.S. arm of a German fintech that helps consumers maximize their retail deposits, specifically their savings. And just banks can compete. They place their rates on this. And then I think the bank pays a fee based on how much money they raise through the platform. They only pay for what they raise. And this gives banks a lot of flexibility in raising deposits sh- short term. But obviously, these are very expensive forms of funds. The other thing I read was a company called Grounded Technologies, which is from, I believe, BMO Financial. They support this fintech that helps asset managers that have like large funds that they need to manage and finds banks that will they can put them in. And I shared this list because I'm like fascinated by different deposit types. And so the different types of deposits that these asset managers are looking to place include 401ks, 1031 exchanges, the EB-5 immigrant investor program, opportunity zones, class action lawsuits. I was fascinated by the fact that like similar to HOAs, is this an area where a community bank or a regional bank could get out of the deposit marketplace and actually go after this type of funding and raise like a platform that would help asset managers that have this type of money Mm -hmm. deposit their funds at the bank, and then you become the weird class-action lawsuit deposit bank, right? (laughs) Like how we see the banks in the West Coast, like, compete for all the HOA deposits. right? And I felt like that was kind of like an opportunity for banks there to, like, maybe specialize in a deposit niche.
0: I spent some time for our newsletter recently going through regional bank earnings calls, which are my favorite thing to go through. And as I was reviewing a lot of the transcripts and listening to the calls, these niche deposit markets are like the hottest opportunity in banking right now. So everyone who had some version of this, whether it was HOAs or warehouse lines for mortgage lending or really any of these things, clash lawsuits are a really popular one as well. All of the banks that had those or were working on cultivating those channels were bragging about them on the calls because those are very niche, stable sources of deposits, right? If you're holding money and essentially like an escrow type account in order to pay out the fines for like a lawsuit or the judgment for a lawsuit, that's a relatively stable source of deposits. It's not like they're going to go seek a better rate out somewhere else while they wait for six months to disperse those funds. So I think that that is an interesting opportunity. I guess the question I have about Grounded or about Save Better some of these places is, are they going to be better able to go compete for all of those niche deposit communities than the banks would themselves, right? Because clearly the banks know about them and some of the banks already have their own versions of that. I would imagine that if you're like a community bank or a small regional bank, you're sort of going after all of the HOAs in your backyard or all of the EB-5 immigrant investor programs in your own backyard or 401k companies. So you're already looking for those. I guess the theory maybe would be that someone like a grounded could outcompete those ones by competing on a national level and maybe paying up a slightly higher rate for them and sort of making them available to banks nationally, as opposed to just whichever ones you happen to find in your own backyard. I'll admit I was a little surprised when I read about the grounded technology one in particular, because I kind of thought they were going to be more of an interbank network for like sharing deposits or banks selling or buying deposits from each other. reciprocal. Yeah, more reciprocal. And that's not what they're doing. They're essentially trying to create a new brokered service for deposits.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because this is like the whole thing with middleware or some of these like more marketplace situations where it's like maybe the bank and the customer finds it easiest to have a middleman or the middleman has, for whatever reason, like a better platform or a nationwide reach, but it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe a bank could hire a banker to go after every DB5 immigrant investor in the country Yeah, and bring in those relationships through a platform, through specialty services. I would say someone should become like the bank of like youth sports programs, you know, those yeah. like clubs like that they need to buy their uniforms and central procurement. And sometimes they have travel like there's a bank. They could probably like come up with a tailored offering to get compete for like, every club in a state. Yeah. But we don't have that. And so the nationwide offering or like a marketplace offering, I think there is room to like get rid of the middleman and make this program directly. It just a bank just needs to do the work to do it versus what this is, which is a spigot.
0: You want to be able to cultivate your own relationship banking, right? Like you want to be able to cultivate deposits that are sticky because they value the ability to work with you because you have a product that's tailored to youth sports, right? And I don't know the youth sports market well enough, at least not yet, to be able to say exactly like what types Alex, of. Alex,
1: this is gonna be your fintech. Oh my God, in like I three to years, God, this right? is even your fintech idea. You're gonna make a bass, which is my least favorite. We're coming acronym. to that. We'll get into that. But for your youth sport, like your kids' youth sports team, the neobank
0: I think I will, right? And then here's the move, right? Here, Here I think is actually the move. So you build a perfect operating account for youth sports organizations where they're like, oh, of course I'd want to keep my money with you because you offer all whatever the bells and whistles are that you need for youth sports. I build that as a fintech. I franchise that to all of the banks in different regions so that they can go out to all of their communities and youth sport organizations, white label my technology and my product and go out and do that. That's what I want to do.
1: Yeah, I don't see any problems with this uh, proposal.
0: Perfect idea. Okay, so no one steal that who's listening because that's going to be my business in five years. All right, next story is, switching sides of the balance sheet, we're going to talk about the asset side and talk a little bit about lending, specifically credit cards. So another news story that caught my eye was that U.S. credit card balances, so the total amount of money on credit cards, consumer credit cards, topped $1 trillion dollars for the first time in history last quarter. This takes credit cards into a territory that was only previously occupied by large installment loan products like auto loans, mortgages, and student loans. Credit cards are now a member of that trillion dollar club as well. Rather alarming headline to read. Anytime I see consumer debt balances have crossed some threshold like a trillion dollars, I kind of flip out in my head and go, oh no, this is a sign that consumers' financial health is deteriorating or there's some kind of bad lending going on the part of banks and they're overextending themselves. I had to sort of calm down, though, when I read more about this, which said that even though we've sort of crossed this threshold, delinquencies have not really ticked up to an alarming degree. They're definitely higher than they were during the pandemic when consumers were flooded with stimulus and a lot of people were sort of behaving somewhat conservatively and paying down their balances, building up their savings. So we have returned, I think, largely speaking to a pre-pandemic level, but we haven't really gone up much beyond that. And in fact, subprime borrowers, which are always the first group that you look at when you're trying to figure out if credit quality is deteriorating, they've actually sort of improved over the last few months. And that's sort of ticked up in a positive direction. Again, despite the fact that we've sort of ramped up our overall level of borrowing on credit cards. I don't know, Kia, this strikes me as weird. I was listening to a different podcast where they were talking about just the sort of mistakes that economists have been making recently in predicting a recession. There was, I think over the last year, pretty much universal belief on the part of economists that we were going to go into a recession. And that hasn't happened. And in fact, if you just look at rate things like the unemployment rate, we kind of have the strongest economy that we've had in like 60 years. And in fact lower income consumers, again, talking about those sort of subprime borrowers in that segment of the market, they've actually seen huge wage growth and a real sort of reversal in income inequality and the disparity between well-off consumers and less well-off consumers. That's actually been turning around over the last couple of years. So I don't know, I kind of feel like the pessimism that I have and that economists have and that seemingly a lot of bank executives have about Man, we're headed into a recession. We're building up reserves because we're worried about delinquencies tipping up. That doesn't seem to square itself with the sort of continuing health of the economy and I guess the apparent ability by consumers to handle this increasing debt load. What's your kind of read on this or reaction to it?
1: It's definitely weird. I was wondering if, and I don't know if I believe this, but I'll just go ahead and pitch it. Do you think that the trillion dollars in balances could be seen as? consumer sentiment that they believe that they can pay off this, that right, rightly or wrongly, they feel confident, especially I saw an article about this fact as well, that the biggest balances are being carried by people, the highest income earners. Yeah. And so maybe they feel like they can carry a balance or a, a bigger balance and contribute to this $1 trillion figure because they believe they will be able to pay it off. Or even if they can't pay it off, they don't think they'll get fired Right. Versus what we saw in the pandemic, which is where people who felt economically insecure, even if they hadn't been part of like the COVID layoffs. And so they would go ahead and pay down their balances. And the other thing, too, is, you know, maybe this is some YOLO money, YOLO spending that or like revenge spending that we've read about. I also think that credit cards is maybe a growth area for consumers that and car loans Mm -hmm. that. One, I think credit card companies have been offering a lot of credit cards. At least Chase has been asking me if any of my friends need a credit card <laughs> and have been they see that as an area of growth. Yeah. And then I also wonder if some of the post-financial crisis changes mean that they banks believe that they are issuing debt to a higher quality borrower.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I think that the sense I kind of get reading between the lines and you look at some like bank executive quotes and some of these stories is they seem to be like, yeah, the consumer's fine. You know what I mean? Like, they're okay. We're very aware of their level of financial stress and sensitive to that. And we don't feel like the level of borrowing we're seeing the level of lending that we're doing is pushing these consumers past their breaking point. Like, they're not seeing that sign of financial distress yet. And so if the consumer can handle more of it, they're going to heap more onto it. And I do think, to your point, even just little things like, capital requirements for banks. I mean, I think everyone is not driving nearly as close to the cliff as they were pre-financial crisis as it relates to lending. And so it does seem like banks and regulators, for that matter, are looking at this and going, yeah, it's a new record, but we have plenty of buffer to absorb losses. They're, they are still pretty conservative, it seems like, in their estimates of like, if we think there's going to be a recession or there's a chance that, you know, credit cycle is going to sort of turn they always kind of build their reserves up and then they kind of release them and then they build them up. So it's like they're still being cautious, but there does seem to be that attitude of, well, if you can handle it, that's fine. And then on the consumer side, I think you're right. I mean, I think that it's kind of an interesting question in terms of the economy and like where unemployment and these other things are sort of hitting because unemployment has been really low, particularly for lower wage, lower income earners. And so if you're... In that segment of the economy, you feel pretty confident because like every time you switch jobs, you get a huge raise. Your salary increases are actually kind of keeping up somewhat with the pace of inflation, even though inflation has been high. Like you're doing good. Your spending power is still strong. So you're not cutting back on your spending or defaulting on your credit card like you're spending and you're continuing to pay it back. And then for those higher income earners, I think that's where there's been a little bit more of the weird economy, right, where it's like unemployment overall is low, but there's lots of layoffs in tech. There's lots of layoffs in media. There's layoffs in all of these other sort of white-collar professions. And I think that in those cases, kind of going back to your point, those consumers probably feel like, hey, it might be six months before I find my next job, or maybe there will be a bit, so maybe I do need a little bit more kind of carrying to balance, paying interest. But I can pay this back. I have ample savings built up. And
1: I own my house and I have a 2% Right, voyage, right. So yeah, like I've every yeah, up.
0: my life is perfect in those ways. And so I can afford to be patient. I can afford to not change my spending behavior, even though my income might have been a little bit disrupted. And so I wonder if the, again, weird ripples in the economy are causing credit card balances to spike. But going back to the bank's perspective, not in a way that's setting off alarm bells with anybody.
1: A trillion's a big, big number, though.
0: It's scary, right? I mean, it's one so it's like, you know, you look at these numbers generally, they don't go down, right? It's not like, oh, you know, U.S. credit card debt has surpassed a trillion dollars. But then, you know, two quarters from now, it's like, oh, it's dipped under a trillion. Like that doesn't tend to happen once we break these ceilings, we kind of just keep going up. So there is an upper limit to this where it won't be sustainable. But for the moment, seems like it's OK. So people can't see me, but I'm crossing my fingers here. Kia, why don't you bring us home with one more story, again, I think, on the asset side.
1: So I have half paid attention to this, (laughs) but the SBA has put forth a proposal to allow FinTechs to take part in its 7A lending program, Mm. and that has been controversial. The plan comes from, obviously, the SBA, which is an agency of the federal government, and it has been championed by the Biden administration, in July, a subcommittee passed a bipartisan bill that would try to scale back some of those efforts. It would limit the number of non-banks into the program, and it would enhance the program's oversight of non-banks. The SBA said that they've conducted in-depth analysis to ensure that it has the capacity to provide that oversight and service the entire portfolio. This is interesting to me, not just because of this development, but because of the role that fintechs played in the PBP program. Which was kind of their like dress rehearsal, arguably, for this opportunity. You know, the PVP program was ar- arguably like a really big giveaway of money, and that attracted a lot of fraudsters. And it seemed like some less scrupulous would be borrowers selected fintechs in part because of some of the reasons why there's a lot of criticism of fintech lenders or non bank lenders, which is like lack of compliance or the focus on the fees. And so three lenders had been called out either by media reports or in the 2021 House Subcommittee report. And those were Wompley, Blue Acorn, and Cabbage. Wompley, like, actually refused to cooperate with the SBA's OIG report or investigation. So this is not the good faith kind of attitude that I think regulators expect to see from the institutions that they do business with. And the other thing, too, is I also wonder if there was just a complete lack of appreciation for how... These government programs work in the financial crisis. A lot of banks paid a lot of money in fines to the government. But they also for mortgages that shouldn't have been sold to Fannie and Freddie, they had what was called a putback and the banks had to take back the mortgages that should not have been sold that Fannie and Freddie were going to have to take losses on and manage them. And that's a pretty normal thing in this program. And it's a big dynamic in like do it right or you can't sell it to us and we won't pay you for it or whatever. And so I am wondering, like, one, I don't know what the gauge of the SBA, if these fintechs really appreciate how some of these programs have to work and the that, you know, if you do it wrong, you have to kind of eat your cooking. And then also I'm kind of fascinated by that they would want this kind of oversight from the SBA and that they'd be willing to give up maybe some of their non-bank privileges and their Wild West behaviors in order to have make the investments in compliance and do that, have that oversight from an agency. So this is a developing story. I could be persuaded either way. It wasn't all FinTechs in the PPP that were like major fraud giveaway programs. And I think FinTechs, you know, did show that they had a lot of nimbleness and were able to disperse money really quickly in a way that some banks kind of struggled with because of some of their digital programs. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, how FinTechs participation in the SBA program is received by the government and as well as banks that also are in that program. What do you think?
0: Well, so here's a hot take for you. You ready? Okay. I think that banks should be thrilled about the SBA letting fintechs into this lending. Um, And the reason for that is that whenever you look at, like, uh, survey data of small business owners and you ask them about lending, they always say this really interesting thing, which is we prefer to work with banks whenever you ask, like, after you've gotten a loan, hey, were you satisfied with the pricing? Were you satisfied with the service? Like, just evaluating the outcome of this process after having gotten the loan, who were you sort of most satisfied in working with? And banks always do better than fintech companies and non-bank lenders when it comes to those things because small business owners tend to think they get a fair price, which I think is probably true. And they like the service and the sort of personal touch. And a lot of times it's someone in their community.
1: They like going in the branch and talking to someone.
0: Yeah. Well, so the branch is the interesting part, right? So the reason, though, is if you look at just the volume of small business lending, most of it actually goes through fintech companies. And fintech companies are the ones that gain have been gaining the most market share over time. They've been sort of eating banks' lunch as it relates just to small business lending volume. And so it's kind of this interesting question where you're like, okay, Mr. Small Business Owner, Mrs. Small Business Owner, why did you choose to work with that FinTech company when you also admit that you tend to be more satisfied working with a bank than working with a FinTech company? And the reason is speed. That's the number one thing. And so FinTech companies tend to win because they offer a digital process, it's fast, it gives the money right away. And small business owners are kind of psychotic in the like, When they need money, they need money right away. And they don't think about things rationally. They go, I need money to keep my small business alive. Where can I go to get that as quickly as possible? So fintechs tend to win that game. I personally think that fintech companies sort of being lured into playing a game where there are more rules and where you actually do have to have more oversight from a government agency and where like satisfaction of the borrowers might matter and the processes you have in place and the diligence you do when you're doing underwriting, like if you can get fintechs to play more by a bank set of rules in such a way where it kind of levels that initial playing field that fintechs have had an advantage on, I actually think banks can win more because I think that some of the advantages that banks have that are a little subtle and less obviously expressed, like pricing and like customer service, those things actually do matter to small business owners. It's just that in that frantic sort of looking for any cash they can get, they tend to turn to fintech companies first. So I actually, if I was a bank executive and I was caring about small business lending, I would be happy that the SBA was sort of inviting fintech companies into this process because I think it probably won't be as good for the fintech companies as maybe they think it will be. I mean, obviously, the 7A lending program is... A nice program. It's sort of similar, as you were saying, to conforming mortgages that go through the Fannies and Freddies of the world. Like there are advantages to participating in that market as a lender, but it comes with a lot of strings that I think that, you know, fintechs are really good at winning in the Wild West. I don't know that they'll be quite as good winning when there are more rules in place. So I actually think hot take, it's kind of a good thing for banks.
1: The other thing, too, is, and this is kind of a bigger, broader problem is that there's actually not a lot of good data between non-banks and banks, if you were wondering. Mm. Banks are highly regulated. They have to report so much data on a quarterly basis. And we actually don't have a ton of similar data for non-banks that compete in the same space, which leads to a really difficult time figuring out what the actual competition is between banks and non-banks. And if we had this data from a government agency like the SBA, and we could see what fintechs are doing how many loans they're doing, how fast they're able to do them in what states, that might help add to the narrative and flesh out the argument of how big is this competition and how big is their advantage. The other thing too is it might be kind of a useful, fun, real live experiment to see, okay, FinTechs do have to follow the same rules for banks you know, is the technology actually a differentiator, right? And that might be useful for banks to kind of see because, you know, for the most part, maybe banks are just competing against banks for these loans. And so if you have similar processes and procedures, you can kind of say, well, that's the only way it should be done. Whereas if you look and you see a fintech come in and, you know, eat all your lunch in your market with this program, maybe you might want to say, well, what are they doing differently and kind of watch that and see, you know, if the technology makes a big difference.
0: Uh, This answer is sponsored by Kia Hazlitt, banking and tech editor at the uh, bank director. And we would also really like to have some better data that we can use to help inform the writing and reporting that we do. So please pass this law. Yeah. So um, if for no other reason, if there are folks in Congress who happen to hear this, please just pass this law so that Kia can have better data. That would be magnificent.
1: Alex said that, not me. The banking lobby can go after (laughs) Alex, not not
0: me. Uh, They already don't really like me. So that's totally fine. All right. So I've already angered the banking lobby. So we're good there. All right. So now next thing is our segment, wait, but why? So this Kia is where I, I think mostly I'm the one who asked these questions because I'm so confused about things happening in banking. I will ask you a question and say, okay, wait, what's happening? Why is this happening? And so my question for you today, Kia, is why is the bank corp, a uh, well-known bank that is an active participant in the banking as a service market, among others. Why is its business model so great? We talked about the BankCorp, I think, in a prior episode a while ago, in which we sort of talked about, wow, this really works well in a low rate environment or a rate environment where rates have historically been low. It also, apparently, according to some of the new stuff that I think you've been looking at, works well in a high rate environment. Maybe it works on the moon or Mars, like. It seems to work everywhere and just be getting better. So Kia, tell me why the Corp's business model is interesting to you and why does it seem to perform so well?
1: Yeah. So in 2021, I wrote, or in 22, I wrote an article looking at the Corp's 2021 performance and their historical performance. And I ended up calling the model in my headline, a perpetual motion money machine. 2021 was a very different rate environment than when I went to go write my piece in 2022. And it turns out it works even better in a high rate environment. So my research that I'm referring to is that Bank Director's 2022 Ranking Banking Report just came out. It's on our website. And I wrote about the best bank balance sheets for 2022. So it wasn't just a profile of the bank. But once again, the bank corp was number 16 overall of all the banks that we ranked and they are number eight in their asset class. In 2022, their net income grew 54% year over year. Net interest income grew 47%, and their NIM expanded 70 basis points year over year. And so I went into looking at what they did, and it's always kind of exciting to do this before and after of the rates and to see how they managed to notch this performance. The first things were the things that they didn't do, So the Bancorp hasn't bought a bond since 2018. And if you remember, the interest rate environment, while not as high as it is now, was on the rise in 2018. And then they also have made much of their loan book floating rate, and then they put in rate floors so that it can only go so low. Their bond book right now is 70% variable, which is pretty unusual in banking to have that high of a percentage of floating rate loans.
0: So this is somewhat comparable to like, In more of a retail context, if you have a lot of credit cards where the rates can kind of go with the interest rates, then that tends to that tends to keep your assets. Yeah.
1: So they just have like rate resets. They don't like to call themselves a banking as a service bank, even though they arguably like contributed to the model being invented. They've kind of moved past it and they call themselves like kind of a fintech platform. Um, but they <laughs> Everyone is a platform, I know, Kia. I Everyone know. is a platform. I think, they make a, I think they make a good point because the way that banking as a service is practiced today seems to be a little bit narrower than what they end up practicing. And I'll go into that, but the banking as a service part comes in definitely with the fintech partnerships that bring in all these deposits. So the way that they price these deposits, the deposits are cheap, quote unquote, to them, but they do pay their partners a certain amount for the deposit relationship. And that relationship, they make more money when their partners make more money when rates go up. So they actually don't have a deposit beta, which is really important because they can model their deposit costs really easily. They also have ways to manage their deposits. One thing I'm fascinated with these Bass banks is that the $10 billion in asset cap means that they also don't want $10 billion in deposits in 15 weeks, right? They have to have a way to move money on and off the balance sheet. And so I saw in my interviews they said that in Q one they got rid of five hundred million dollars in deposits. So maybe that's in a deposit marketplace where they can also just collect money and send that money to someone, a bank that needs it. So they're really managing their liabilities closely.
0: And that's a nice way to make money too, right? Because like if I have a bunch of fintech partners that are generating really low cost deposits, and yeah, I'm kicking them back a little money as interest rates rise, but. I'm not, you know, having to really pay for those deposits. And then anything over what I want, I can just kick off to banks that are desperate for deposits and are probably willing to pay a premium for it. That's a good spread right there.
1: And, you know, they're big managers of liquidity because they do a lot of payments. And so they they're just really good at tracking the money back and forth for their payment partners, but to have liability management strategies. And then for loans. So like I think when we talk about the bankrupt, we actually just tend to focus on the FinTech partnership stuff, but they Last year, I remember asking their COO, like, why do you guys even make loans? Like, you, you don't have to. Why would you want duration risk? Why would you want credit risk? And they know that assets carry risk, but they have kind of changed how they approach lending. And so one of the things is they do nationwide lending. They don't have a branch network, so it's kind of all online. And they find like lending niches where non-banks are active because they can go in and beat those non-banks on price and they can often use like website, like online services and platforms to help facilitate these loans. And so he was talking about like vehicle leasing. And so they will find the companies that supply the police departments with all of their police cars, cruisers. And these are all weird mom and pop shops. And they've made like a nationwide lending platform to help these leased car buyers order the cars and customize them and then finance them. They also do really short-term loans, they do floating rate loans, and they do a lot of they'll securitize loans to move them off their balance sheets because they want to stay under 10 billion. And so this is why their NIM grows in a high rate environment, right? Because their deposits are low and they have they can model the cost up perfectly and then they can kind of play and maximize the NIM and on the asset side. They can maximize asset yields. And then they have, obviously, lots of interchange income and income that comes from their payment partners. And then the thing that I've been fascinated by is this is an asset cap, right? Like we talk about Wells Fargo being under an asset cap, and that's bad for Wells Fargo. Well, when you have an asset cap, you don't actually tend to have to grow your capital because you are not growing your size. And so the CEO told me that the bank can max out its capital once it hits its ideal size, but its ROE, like its return on equity of that capital, continues to grow. So they are now targeting a 30% ROE long-term without needing to take any extra credit risk because they'll just keep mixing their assets to maximize that return, which I think is fascinating. And I th- like, that's why that's where the perpetual motion of this model comes up, right? It kind of just self-perpetuates once you've made all these investments, once you have all these partnerships, once you have the business line. You're just kind of, you know, maximizing everything.
0: It's kind of one of those things where it seems like fintech, not just banking as a hers, but just fintech broadly and all of these sort of niche opportunities that they've gotten themselves into. It's like they all kick off these really, really valuable assets that by themselves are sort of difficult to fully monetize. right? So kind of going to your point about the non-bank lenders they compete with on the lending side. Like those non-bank lenders are doing really well getting to some of these niche providers, but they're not a bank with a balance sheet that they can lend off of. And so they have a higher cost of capital. They can't be as flexible on pricing. And so it seems like their ability to sort of keep all of these different plates spinning and then achieve balance across all of those by being really good at managing their balance sheet is kind of turning into this superpower where they can keep generating more profit without getting bigger. It's fascinating.
1: I do think that the discipline of keeping yourself under $10 million and then kind of working backwards, how do you make more money if you don't grow by asset size, creates a lot of really interesting problems and for banks or interesting challenges. It's interesting that they are not making loans to the customers who put their deposits in the bank, right? They don't probably want to lend to those customers. They want to go after these really unusual Short term non bank financing spaces and then compete there. And when you have such a cheap cost of funds, you can make money off of a two or 3% loan in a low rate environment. And then in a high rate environment, that two or 3% loan becomes like a six or 7% loan.
0: I almost wonder if that discipline that they have to have to stay under the $10 billion in assets, like they have to be so disciplined about how they manage their balance sheet. This is a theory. I have no evidence of this at all, but I wonder if that sort of discipline and the competency they've had to build internally sort of helped them be a little smarter as rates were rising and how they managed that. Cause it did feel like a lot of regional banks just weren't really paying attention, right? As things as rates were going up. And so they kind of got caught in this place where they weren't making any obviously bad decisions, but they weren't proactively managing their balance rate or balance sheet in a way that would sort of protect the business. And it's curious to me that the bank corp has done such a good job of that relative to a lot of their peers.
1: Yeah, I think it's the discipline in managing the balance sheet. Like even just thinking about we have to manage deposits, right? Like we don't want to. Yeah. (laughs) We've seen what happens when banks don't manage deposits deposits are bad. Right. Yeah, And and so the fact that the bank corp can have so, so many moving parts and focus on them and really try to manage some of the risk. But The other thing too is like, this is a lot of work. You know, this is not banking on autopilot. Like I think now there is some perpetual motion, but there is a lot of tweaking. There's a lot of like, you know, I asked like what they're doing for 23 or for the rest of 23 and 24, and they are moving from floating to fixed, right? This is, and I don't know how many banks can turn on a dime or how long it would take to shift your asset book. I know that a lot of banks have fixed rate stuff on their book, and are now making floating rate loans, but the mix is different. And they also said like, you know, they're buying a lot of bonds. Like you, maybe they don't need to make any more loans. They can just buy some bonds and make, you know, buy a tw- 10 or 20 year bond at 5%. And so that's been kind of interesting to think about too. It's like, I just think that this is a bank that when you get away from almost anything that looks like a bank, and really distill banking to its parts, you can get some really creative solutions, but it's just a lot of work to do it. And that's why I think they stand out among the banking as a service banks. Because again, I don't know if we see all the banking as a service banks actively managing so much of their balance sheet and managing their to the asset cap the way that we see the bank corp do it. And then to maximize even like thinking like any bank could do thick floating rate assets. You just have to commit to finding those verticals where someone, you know, borrower will accept the floating rate loan. And a lot of banks don't make those loans, right?
0: The effort to go a little further than where other banks their size go, I think, is probably the key point, right? Because the other one, this is more of a fintech nerd thing than a bank nerd thing. But on the fintech side, one thing that I know about their banking as a service programs is they're very accommodating to fintech partners, right? They work with the largest fintech companies. They try to work with very experienced, mature, multi-time founders. They tend to try to have the big programs that are scaling up because obviously those generate the most revenue and produce the most deposits for the balance sheet. But the cost of doing that is those fintech companies are a pain to work with, right? Like they're not easy customers. They tend to have a lot of specific things that they want. For example, like they'll want to bring their own core to work with. So instead of you, the fintech company, using the bank's core system, each of these big fintech programs, they build their own core, they go get some specialized core, and they bring it to the bank and say, yeah, this is what we'd like to use to keep track of our ledger. We need you to integrate that into your core. So, you know, Bancorp is supporting, I don't know, a dozen cores, maybe more. Like they They do a lot more technical work to make their banking as a service business work and work well for those really attractive fintech partners. And I think it would look like madness to most of the other Banking as a service banks or banks that are considering doing it, but it's the cost of doing business if you want to build a balance sheet like this.
1: And I think it's also really interesting to compare, you know, the bank corps' performance to the other banking as a service banks, too, because, you know, I think you've made the argument that it's becoming a little bit of a commoditized um, service or a commoditized space. And this is to ask, like, what could it be? It's not just a deposit play. Right, it's not just an interchange play. So,
0: yeah, I think a good way of putting that is, if you're a bank using it just for gathering deposits or generating interchange, you're not thinking broadly enough about what it can be for your bank, right? Because, like to your point, this powers all kinds of really great short-term variable rate, floating rate lending for the bank corp. That a bunch of those banks would have no idea how to start up a program like that, but they're really effective. You can get them in place.
1: Well, Alex, I want to move. Hard left away from things that are innovative and new. And I want to ask you <laughs> if the youth know what a CD is.
0: Ah, okay. So this is our possibly unanswerable question. And the reason it's possibly unanswerable is that, Kia, I am not young. I don't know how young you feel. I feel like I'm the oldest person my age in the world. So I'm a bad person to ask this question to, but I want to opine on it anyway because. CDs are just utterly fascinating to me. I got a CD. That was one of the first financial products I ever got when I was, I don't know, 16, 17. Like I opened up a checking account. Yeah, how did you, what's the backstory?
1: Did someone give it to you? Did you ask for it?
0: So I got it, but my uncle was the sort of branch manager at the local bank in town. And so I had sort of a family connection to the bank and he's like, here's the different things we had. And he's like, here's a CD. And I'm like, well, what's a CD? And he's like, well, it's really cool because we will pay you a much higher interest rate if you just leave this chunk of money here with us and don't touch it for this amount of time. And I was like, okay, well, I'm 16. I don't need this money. Like I have way more money than I'll ever need. I have no expenses whatsoever. So yeah, this sounds cool. And like ever since then, that has always sort of stuck in my head is like, it's a neat tool in the toolbox, both for banks and for consumers. And what I find interesting about CDs is and this is knowledge that I have gained after becoming friends with Yukia, but CDs are seen from a bank balance sheet management regulatory perspective as very risky. And I was surprised to learn this, but the reason historically that the CDs have been seen as risky is they are a very efficient tool, whether it's done directly or especially if it's done via brokers, to pull in a lot of deposits very quickly, right? Because obviously CDs are one of the, Easiest mechanisms for paying a higher interest rate. So if you want to earn more interest, going through a CD is a good way of doing that. And obviously, a that's kind of hot money that you're bringing into the bank because a lot of it is very rate-seeking. Before I don't we know were that... in a
1: super high environment, yeah, it was hot money. It was, it was, that yeah, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Money. It was
0: <laughs> right, right. It used to be hot money, now not so much. And um, it was also, and this is something I had no idea about, but it was seen as sort of a signal by regulators that not only is that sort of hot money that you have there, but it's also indicative maybe of more risk that you're taking on. Because if you're pulling in all of this money very quickly, you must have some lending things that you want to do. And if you want to lend money in that amount that quickly, maybe we should be a little concerned. And there's lots of stories in banking history of banks going out of business after bringing in a bunch of hot money via CDs and then lending it in crazy ways and getting themselves in trouble. So over time became kind of a signal.
1: The CDs leave faster than other types of deposits as well. Right. So they come in faster, they leave faster.
0: They come in fast, they leave fast. So that's the old world, right? And that was the thing that, like, okay, so CDs are kind of risky. Yeah, maybe they don't make a lot of sense. Of course, now rates have gone up. And so we were in, like, a zero-rate environment for a long time. Rates have since gone up. CDs don't seem, I don't think, especially remarkable to anyone And the thing that's interesting to me, Kia, is from a bank perspective, I kind of think CDs are sort of underrated now. And what I mean by that is, and feel free to push back if you have a counterpoint here, but in the old world, as you said, other types of deposits, checking accounts, savings accounts, whatever, those were sticky because consumers, unless there was some big problem, they weren't going to move their money. Who moves their checking account. That's insane. Like no one ever switches banks. And so there was this sort of comfort that you could model off of, which was, hey, if we have these core deposits that we feel are very sticky, that's something that we can model off of. And we feel really good about a not paying high rates for it and b, that it's not just all going to run off very quickly. We feel comfortable modeling against that. I think what we've seen, though, in the new world as rates have gone up and is that we're now living in a digital banking world, we're living in a world of Fed now and instant payments, as you and I talked about a while ago. I don't think those same assumptions about how sticky core deposits are really that fair anymore, right? It's so much easier to move money now. Money can move really fast. That's been a component to a lot of the problems that some banks have had. And by contrast, those CDs that are sitting over there, yeah, are they kind of hot money in terms of people being rate-seeking? Yes, Can they and will they maybe move as soon as the term is over? Yes, but they're time bound. You know contractually how long you have them. So at least it's a known risk, right? You know exactly how long you're going to have those deposits and you can plan around that. Whereas this other money that you have, who knows? Like, I don't know that banks should feel super comfortable modeling against consumer behavior given how much has changed about banking in the last 20 years. So Kia, my case to you is CDs should be the new hot product that everyone is innovating on top of, and we should make CDs sexy again. I don't think young consumers know about them, but I think they'd be interested in them.
1: A colleague called me this week and said, should I open an eighth month credit union or a month CD (laughs) at my credit union? This is the rate it pays. And so I talked to her about like, well, have you considered a high rate savings account? And she actually... (laughs) She decided she was interested. And I explained also that at month nine, that rate is going to reset. So if you're, I don't know how much money you're going to put in this CD, but you're only going to get eight months of interest on it. And then at month nine, what they'll want to do is reset your rate and they're hoping you're not going to notice. And so that's either got to be cool with you or you've got to have a plan for that money. And I think she actually is inclined to open the CD because she wants to keep her money kind of like at the credit union. like She just doesn't want to manage a bunch of accounts the way you and I are apparently fine doing. And I do think banks are rediscovering the magic of time-bound money and that they are understanding that the money's not hot if it's the market rate, but the money that is below market is the money that you need to worry about. So I wonder if there's some like set it and forget it or to lock up some liquidity and then worry about the money that is, less money now, like lower interest now, but might grow to be a higher interest. And you just don't know if you're going to be able to retain that money at a higher interest or if the money's just going to leave. And then you're going to wish you had locked up some of that money. And banks are really making that choice right now. And they're willing to let some of it run off and they're willing to bring in some of it. And like we talked about with the new money, old money thing, they, they actually want new relationships rather than just paying their existing customers more. But I have been fascinated because this is a real like turnaround for CDs because I was laughing at your <laughs> notes in the document about how much you like love CDs and how all banks should gather CDs. And I just wonder if the I FDIC love is going to come them. calling you because I don't think the FDIC <laughs> I would be interested to see what regulators say about the use of CDs that pay the market rate in the market. I think that CDs became a harbinger of risk because you can grow them quickly and they leave fast and then they also pay a high rate. We just live in an environment where some of those considerations are not relevant anymore. It is just really easy to figure for consumers to figure out products that pay a high rate. And are you really going to fault a bank for bringing in locked money that pays the same as a treasury bond? Like, Is that really the biggest risk? The risk is now not the CD, it's that the CD is more than the mortgage, right? Right. Which is what I think like Bloomberg was writing about is how many Americans have a mortgage that pay, that is less than the Marcus savings account. And that's the management, right? It's not. And so it is so funny for me to see the renaissance of CDs. And because it is the one way that banks can kind of lock up the money. I think a high yield. Savings an account is similar, but you always just wonder if that money could be competed away versus, you know, bringing in the a three-month, six-month, 12-month CD.
0: Yeah, I mean, the core thing you're sort of touching on here that kind of drives me crazy about banks is, and I just, again, I went through this with a bank I was working with. They're terrible at customer retention, right? Like, I feel like one of the things that banks screw up a bit, and it's sort of a very human thing, is if you think of everything you're doing in terms of your balance sheet, you sometimes end up sort of screwing your customers when you don't really necessarily mean to or want to, but it's just, eh. If it's all just, oh, this is how, this is the segment of customers we have that's keeping our deposit beta low. If some of them leave, then we'll just go get other customers. And like, none of that pricing discussion and balance sheet discussion takes into consideration the fact that these are like human beings who have opinions about your brand and relationships with other people that they're going to tell people about, right? And so I do think there is this sort of customer value conversation that needs to get blended into the balance sheet conversation. Because like, as an example, a thing I would really want would be, okay, we're going to build a deposit service for you, Alex Johnson. And this service is basically going to help you figure out, in the same way that we do for our commercial customers, by the way, how much money do you need in an operating account? Which is to say, the checking account that you use to pay your bills, and kind of cover everyday expenses. Like what's the operating account looking like? What features does it have to have? Okay, great. We have that. Then we have a range of different options for you, depending on your goals, for how you can put your money in different places in order to maximize the return for you while keeping the money available for any uses that you have for it. So we have a high yield savings account. It pays this. We have a CD. It pays a little bit more. We have these treasury management, or I guess in this case, like wealth management capabilities where you can invest in mutual funds, you can save money for retirement. So we have all of these different options. And what we want to help you do is constantly and intelligently optimize the deposits you have across all of those. So, guess what? When you put money into a CD, we're not going to hope that in month nine, you just forget about it and the rate resets and we can sneak out a couple extra months of you not noticing that your CD has matured, but you haven't taken the money out, we're going to notify you and let you know exactly when. Like, I kind of feel like all of banking used to be a game of hoping your customers didn't notice. And in the age of digital banking and fintech and intelligent automation and notifications and open banking and the ability to port your data around, I feel like that strategy is just a losing strategy. Someone out there is going to tell your customers that you suck and that you're ripping them off. So it's much better to not do that.
1: I mean, Apple raised ten billion in fifteen weeks. Like, I, like the writing is on the wall here. I, it's crazy. Yeah, it's what I'm saying, man. It's what I'm saying. So there is a there is a paper that came out last year. I re- remember writing about it. That found that the longer a customer had been a depositor at a bank, the worse rate they got. Banks p- tend to pay their new customers and their new money the highest rate. And then over time, the rate would fall and, you know, just average out. And I guess that's a model. <laughs> that's a choice. It doesn't have to be that way. Some banks who have like higher rate loans have adopted something else. But there are thousands of banks in the country that part of their deposit strategy, either explicitly or implicitly, includes that just paying their older like. The longer the customer is in the bank, the worse rate they get. And, you know, I think the argument is that you receive services and benefits that are non-monetary. And we will see how compelling an offering that is now that it's just really, really easy to move your money around. And so much of banking is not done in person or geographically based.
0: I think that is exactly right. And that's a good place to leave that particular question. I think we covered that one pretty well. Kia, I have a surprise segment that I wanted to end the show with. Okay, new segment alert. For the listeners out there, one thing you should know is that when Kia and I are prepping this particular show, Kia texts me a lot with things she wants to talk about, adds a ton of notes into the outline. And in particular, there are these things that come up from time to time where she's just like, Alex, why is it this way? And just doesn't necessarily make for a good news segment or wait, but why segment. But I can tell Kia that there's almost some like kind of bank reporter therapy that needs to happen so new segment not something we'll do every show but when there's something that you need to get off your chest the segment is called go off kia so (laughs) i know you have something that has been bugging you so go off all
1: right alex you recently wrote a it's your newsletter that started this which which was (laughs) like banking as a service plus what was the other stuff you were throwing it in there
0: Ballot Sheet Augmentation Ballot as a Service. I made up a augment- new absurd
1: acronym. And so what, say what this acronym is. Like, because I, I was reading it in a certain way, but say what Say what it is.
0: I, in my head, it sounds like BASAS. 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 And so it's uh balance sheet augmentation as a service, kind of this whole deposit marketplace thing that we've been talking about as an extension of banking as a service. It drove you crazy, I'm
1: taking it. I need you to knock it off. I found myself extremely (laughs) triggered by seeing that many capital letters and lowercase letters next to each other in a meaningless acronym. And I need everyone to stop doing the as a service, which if you pronounce it is ass, and so A-A capital S, SAS, Bass. I hate saying bass, so that's not a like a mouth experience that I really enjoy. I think banking as a service means almost nothing, and so it's not an acronym that I think is useful. It's not a phrase that I think is useful. It got me thinking about like the worst acronyms in banking, and there's some in fintech, but I don't, you know, as a baby fintech reporter, I don't know them all yet. But I'm I'm gonna gather <laughs> some, and you can feel, send them to me on Twitter. So I made a list of the bad acronyms. The first up is AOCI. We talk about AOC a, a lot because it's where the unrealized losses in the AFS securities go. It stands for accumulated other comprehensive income, which also means basically nothing. If I explained it to you, it would not make sense. And so I'm not going to do that.
0: Kia did explain it to me offline and it doesn't make it doesn't sense. doesn't make so any sense. So just listeners, trust me on that. Nope, nope.
1: Um, so some special mentions are that in banking, we have net interest income and non-interest income. Those are two different types of income but they use oh, no. the same acronym, NII.
0: That's a terrible one.
1: They're often mentioned together. Yeah, no, it's really bad. I don't know who invented all the like terms that we use for banking, but net interest income and non-interest income was a mistake. Uh, and and it's really actually easy to, to mix those two if you're a financial reporter who doesn't want to make errors in her story. And so I think one of those should change. And then CET1 and TCE are two capital ratios. Mm. CET1 is Common Equity Tier 1, and TCE is Tangible Common Equity. These are two different types of capital ratios, and AOCI is actually deducted from TCE, but not deducted from CET. And it's re- like I actually have to say it in my head before I say the acronym <laughs> because it's just the same letters mixed up.
0: I'm just imagining you like at night, right before you close your eyes to go to sleep, going AOCI yeah. is deducted from TCI, but <laughs> <TCE>. not CDT1. <laughs> TCE, I can't yeah, even you do, can't the do the whole do it. sentence without You can't even make the joke up. correctly. And so,
1: <laughs> this is my plea, this is my rant to stop the madness, stop the confusion, get a little bit creative. Think about a phrase that actually describes the thing you mean for it to describe. So we can move away from AOCI and banking as a service. And, you know, this would really help me as a writer have less feelings when I write.
0: (laughs) All right. So I have a couple of questions before I let you go on this particular topic. So one is, as an editor specifically, does the lowercase and capital letter acronym thing piss you off?
1: Actually, it doesn't piss me off as an editor as much. It drives me as a reader more. It, like I just don't like seeing it on the page. It bothers me. But that's, I will say that as an editor, what really annoys me is vanity capitalization. So we follow AP Style for capitalizations. And their capitalization treatment is proper nouns and names uh-huh. and titles before a name. There's like this whole thing in the AP Style book. And you would not believe the things that get capitalized. <laughs> So that's what I don't like.
0: You're not going to have a ton of fun in fintech if you're not wild about random capitalization because we do that. You know
1: what I don't like in fintech is the goofy spelling. Oh my god, who are you impressing no, with the Z's? I know.
0: Okay, well, but, and I'll tell you something else. And this is neither here nor there. And I really do like the company, but Marquetta is impossible to spell it has because a Q-U. I always I want love to put it. a U. I
1: love that. It, no, it doesn't have a oh, Q. U. It doesn't, doesn't have a Q. U. No,
0: <laughs> no, it doesn't.
1: This is worse than it you doesn't not doesn't knowing that that bank failed. Oh, it's a QE. Okay, a a Q. It's QE. Okay, okay. And it's
0: QE and it's bad. Oh. And like, it really messes me up. The other question I have for you is, in your plea for us to be more creative, are you okay with us stretching the specific words that are used in order to come up with cool acronyms? I'll give you an example of this. Instead of balance sheet augmentation as a service, which is what I had initially had, B S A A A S.
1: You also can't use BSA. You know that, right? There's an acronym in banking, very famously, BSA. I
0: heard that. I heard that from multiple people.
1: You do not want BSA balance sheets and BSA Bank Secrecy Act to get confused.
0: No. And that came up actually with quite a few of my compliance nerds out there. So that one I got some feedback on. But someone else suggested what if you did balance sheet augmentation and distribution as a service? and play with the capitalization of the letters or whatever and make the acronym BADASS?
1: Oh, I like BADASS. Yeah, that would make also it very cool that you're
0: doing it. This. Right, right, exactly. So, yeah. like, make BASS BADASS could have been the title if I had had my head on straight when I was writing it. So, you're okay with that, it sounds like, if we get a little more creative.
1: Only if it's cool. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I. You can't no, come up fair. with a longer acronym... Because like it's like EBITDA, right? Like that's like God, everyone like hates EBITDA. I hate EBITDA. that
0: one. Hate yeah,
1: it. and EBITDA is not a cool thing to say either, right? Well, it just makes no. you kind of sound like kind of nerdy, but it's yeah. like it's a, just a really long acronym, and then or a really long thing that it stands for, and then a really long acronym too. You know what? You know what acronym I really like is Cecil. I think that's a good acronym. Cecil is a good one. What's interesting about Cecil is the old model, the incurred loss model, didn't have an acronym. And so, or if it did, it never crossed my radar. And I kind of liked, I liked using Cecil in a sentence. And so you like to say it. And then there was like this like accounting joke for a while about like Cecil the lion. Like if you went to the accounting conference, (laughs) there was like a lion mascot that would sometimes like pop up. Yeah, it was good. It was like, it it had some jokes. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. So wait, that brings up one last question. I promise is the last one I have. Okay. Are you pro or con? It sounds like you're more pro- saying the acronym as if it were a word, because I will say one of the ones that we do in banking that drives me out of my mind. I'm not sure why I feel this way, but I feel it strongly.
1: Oh, I can't wait because I have one in my mind.
0: Okay. So mine is FCRA and people say FICRA and there's no I.
1: What's F C R? The Fair Credit Reporting Act?
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So FCRA, Fair Credit Reporting Act, FICRA, and lots of compliance people say FICRA and there's no I. There's no I. It just It's gross. Yeah. Bad mouthfeel, as you were saying before. So I've always been kind of anti-saying the acronym as if it were a word. And then like bass, obviously it's not spelled like it, but it sounds like the fish. And then that leads to like the bass pro shop sort of jokes and stuff. So I'm not, I think I'm not wild about it. What are your feelings on that?
1: So the acronym that I thought you were going to say was Cree, C-R-E.
0: Oh, yeah. Do people say Cree? Do they say that?
1: Yeah, people say Cree.
0: (laughs) Oh, I don't like that at all. Yeah.
1: And you kind of have to know, you actually have to contextually know what they're talking about because if they don't. Say it. It just sounds like they're saying something else, yeah. and so I've heard it said a couple of times, like in earnings calls. It can come up that like that way, and it might like when in a transcript it'll cre like Cree. and so they're like, oh, they're talking about cre, not Cree. I would never say Cree, just say cre. I ficra I don't like, but that's because the f and the c, the phonics are all wrong. You know, that's
0: what I say. Yeah, that's what yeah, I say. Like if you're going you to pronounce it, then it actually yeah, it has to be like an actual word that you're yeah. pronouncing. You can't like. Yeah, drop extra letters in there.
1: It needs some vowels. It does need some vowels, not just an A at the end, you know?
0: Okay. So, uh, well, I mean, and maybe what you're getting at there is also more vowels in acronyms, like less consonants, more vowels, maybe. So, okay. All right. I think we unpacked that one decently. All right. So for anyone out there, if you have any like questions about whether your acronyms are okay, not okay. I'm certainly gonna do this, run them by Kia first. Well,
1: so this is like your logo thing, right? Like this is it is the names, the logos, the acronyms, like it could get really personal really fast on, yeah. on accident. You've already named K&A. one that doesn't have a <sighs> Q-U.
0: Well, I think what we're saying is in the future, you and I might team up to start a business just doing consulting on names, logos, acronyms, like the really important stuff in business. Yeah. That will do it for us today. Kia, thank you so much for another delightful stop on Bank Nerd Corner.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.